Welcome to Stonewall Spotlight, a monthly podcast brought to you by the Stonewall Democratic Club, bringing you the most salient issues in democratic politics from the LGBTQIA and feminist lens. I'm Marcus Levengood, your host for today's episode, and I'm so excited to share with you three insightful interviews on this special two-part election madness spotlight special. Our own Mackenzie Hussman sat down with California Congresswoman and VP runner-up Karen Bass, an inspirational street artist and Stonewall Leadership Cohort member, Lucky Fuller, who was the artist behind the All Black Lives Matter mural on Hollywood Boulevard. I also sat down with Stonewall's own Freddie Puza as he talks to us about his run for Culver City Council as Stonewall's endorsed candidate in that race. We'll also hear from Jonathan Welch's take on this year's Senate races across the U.S. and what's at stake. All that and more on this month's exciting 2020 election edition of Stonewall Spotlight. And now, Mackenzie's exciting interview with California Congresswoman Karen Bass. We are so pleased to welcome Congresswoman Karen Bass to Stonewall Spotlight. Representative Bass is a formidable figure in the U.S. House of Representatives, serving in her fifth term representing California's 37th Congressional District. She sits on the powerful House Foreign Affairs and House Judiciary Committees. She is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and this year was reportedly a finalist to become Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. Representative Bass also holds the distinction of being the first African-American woman in history to serve as Speaker of the California State Assembly prior to being elected to Congress. Whew, what an introduction. Thank you for joining us, Congresswoman. How are you today? Thanks for having me on, and I'm doing fine. Good, good. Welcome back to Spotlight. Well, I know you are very busy, so let's jump right into our questions. Sure. Now, the coronavirus has claimed more than 170,000 American lives, and the full economic fallout is still yet to be seen, though 51 million Americans have filed for unemployment since the outset of the virus. Negotiations over a second relief package have stalled in Congress. What's the holdup from your purview, and what do people need to be doing to get action on this? Well, first of all, what people need to be doing is pressuring Mitch McConnell and asking him to serve as the Senate president and not as a staff person for President Trump. Mm -hmm. In terms of the holdup, two of the areas of controversy, which to me are just shocking. The Republicans do not want to provide resources to state and local governments. The Republicans want to defund the police because the local money goes to law enforcement, it goes to healthcare, it goes to teachers, it goes to firefighters, and in California, we are suffering from fires now. They do not want to give individuals $600 a week extra in unemployment. Now, they mm -hmm. had no problem giving half a trillion dollars to Steve Mnuchin to bail out major industries. Now, I want to see the airlines and the hotels. I don't want to see them close. But Steve Mnuchin didn't even want to reveal who was getting the money. So they have no problem doing that, but they don't want Mr. Jones down the street to have $600 a week because they believe then Mr. Jones will become lazy and won't want to go to work. 
That is so, so disrespectful. It doesn't make any sense to me personally either. It's, I think people would want to work personally. Well, what it's not taking into account is that number one, people might not have jobs to go back to. And number two, their jobs might not be safe. Of course, people want to work. I don't know anybody that $600 a week extra is allowing them to lay on their couch and watch TV. If anything, people are sick of laying on their couch and watching TV at this point in time. Yeah, and there's also job security in that as well, right? If you refuse to take that work, you actually lose that $600 when you file for unemployment. So their argument makes no sense to me. Well, there's also uh, an election going on uh, that we that we're all very much aware of. And uh, during the Democratic National Convention last week, President Obama warned Americans in no uncertain terms that we should not let uh, not let them take away our democracy and not let them right. take away our power. Right. Do you share presidential uh, President Obama's concerns? Absolutely. I mean, we're in the middle of watching historic voter suppression. I mean, the idea, usually voter suppression was kind of a little undercover, but going to the post office and removing sorting machines, removing blue boxes, um, I I don't know how more blatant you can get. You know, President Trump is on tape going, he was happy that black people didn't vote four years ago and that he knows that that's one of the reasons that he won. We know there's foreign intervention. We know that there are places where they close or reduce the number of in-person voting places so that now people have to risk their lives to vote. If that's not an example of of us us needing to be concerned about our democracy being taken away from us, one of the basic features of our democracy is voting and free and fair elections. Right. Right. And you... you touched upon it, the um, the U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and the Trump administration have launched the full, this full-scale assault on our Postal Service. And as we know, Mr. DeJoy appeared before the House to provide testimony. And I'm curious, what was your takeaway from the hearing? And, you know, is there anything we can do as Americans to stop this assault on the well, Postal Service? I mean, I think the reason why it was stopped to begin with is because of the public outcry. And that needs to continue because unfortunately with this administration, we have to be vigilant 24 hours a day because it seems as though they are constantly looking for ways to cheat. Unfortunately, that's the way Trump has led his life. And so we really shouldn't be surprised that he would go about the presidency any different. I think all of us had hoped that out of his own patriotism, that he would have risen to the level of governing and that he would have concern for the American public. The commander in chief's number one job is to protect the people. You mentioned over 170,000 Americans have died. The commander in chief has failed at his most important priority. Yep, I think um, Donald Trump's lack of ethics and his rampant criminality and lies have been laid bare for the world to see. And uh, he is the third American president to be impeached in the House, and you voted to impeach him. And for that, I'd like to personally thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And yet there is still a portion of the electorate that doesn't see his circumvention of democratic norms and laws as a problem. 
Why do you think there's such a divide in our nation? And do you see a path for us to overcome it? Well, our path to overcome it absolutely is through our organizing, our activism, and through telling people the truth. Unfortunately, you can tie many of those people to being folks who watch Fox News. And this is the first time that I can recall in our history that a president has had his own TV network. Uh, it essentially operates like Russian TV with Putin. <laughs> so whatever. Propaganda. Putin, that's what's on the news that night. And it isn't news, it's propaganda. And yeah. so um, you have a TV network that 24 hours a day is fanning the flames, stoking the fires of division, especially racial division in our country, and then just outright lying about the president. And then what concerns me more than anything is the way that network allows for fake treatments of COVID to be publicized, like hydroxychloroquine or the latest one, you know, the plasma. They put it out as though it's fact. And unfortunately, their viewers and their listeners watch it and believe it. And I believe that has a tremendous amount to do with the people who are still uh, following uh, Trump. And that the convention this week has been like a cult of personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm even fearful that, you know, if all goes well, we get Biden and Harris uh, into the White House and then Trump steps down. And I'm and I'm like thinking what's going to happen after he steps down? Is he going to go away? Is he still going to be on Fox? Are those divides? Is he still going to be dividing us as a nation, even though he's not in the White House? I think he's where my mind goes. I think he absolutely will. But one thing that we know about him, he really only cares about himself. And sure. so what is going to benefit him will be what he does. And uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he starts his own TV network, because a lot of people believe that's why he ran for president. He didn't expect to win. But the damage, the wreckage that he has caused, one domestically, but also internationally. So my fear for President Biden and Vice President Harris is that number one, when they come in, they're gonna have to address the pandemic and they might have to hit the reset button and do in January, 2021, what should have been done in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to uh, shift back to something that you spoke about earlier. Um, and do you support the calls to defund the police, which is as we know, a movement to reallocate portions of the police budget to community-based social services. And I'm curious, what can be done at a federal level to address this issue? Well, uh, first of all, what I support is refunding our communities because right. many, many years ago, when we started defunding communities, when we cut back on resources for education, for healthcare, for um, mental, in particular, uh, mental illness, when we did those cuts, when we reduced economic supports, then you have a rise in a number of social, economic, and health problems, and we essentially left that to police. We've, we incarcerate health issues. So we incarcerate people who are mentally ill, we incarcerate people who are addicted, and if we would stop doing that, and if we would address underlying health issues, we wouldn't need to have so much money into policing. So until we do that, uh, I believe that it, that is an issue and it absolutely can be dealt with on a federal level uh, because we need to be putting money into communities. So 
what I would say on a federal level, we could look at the defense budget, <laughs> which in some parts of it are even unknown. We could question whether or not we need to put all of that money into defense and can't a lot of it go into educating our people. And let me just say that because of the pandemic, we before the pandemic, we had an achievement gap. The achievement gap is going to be huge after when the pandemic is passed because kids literally could have been out of school for longer than a year. Why don't we invest money in shoring up and closing the achievement gap at, at last? I love that idea. That makes complete sense to me. Uh, Representative Fast, you are the endorsed candidate of the Stonewall Democratic Club and are considered to be an ally of the LGBTQ plus community. Probably. Would you share with, thank you. Would you share a little bit with us about how you came to be an ally for our community? Well, I mean, my entire life has been about fighting for social and economic justice. And so fighting for LGBTQ rights is no different. Uh, that is a part of my basic values. So it's not about how I came to be an ally. Uh, that's there from the beginning. If you believe in social and economic justice, you believe in social and economic justice for everyone. And for people that are discriminated against, you ban in solidarity with them because all of us are impacted. And the only way we win really is to band together. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is at the core of, of our community specifically. So we're glad to have you. Glad to have you in our in our corner. Thank you. Uh, finally, Congresswoman Bass, uh, I'm curious, who inspires you? Uh, do you have any heroes and why? Oh gosh, yes. But, you know, I'm inspired uh, more than anything by average people who are not known, are not big celebrities, but who fight every day to survive, and while they're fighting to survive, they make sure that they're helping others at the same time. And I mm -hmm. think that is just so important. That's why I'm committed to really focusing on a new generation of activists, because if we learned anything over the last three and a half years, even when you win certain things, I mean, you know, winning the issue around transgender in the military and you win something, and then somebody comes along and takes it from you. So the fight for social and economic justice continues on generation after generation. So we have to make sure that those folks that are coming up now have all the benefits of our experience so that they can take that baton and continue that fight. Mm -hmm. Everyday heroes, like you mentioned. Right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add before we can conclude today? No, just I am, am honored to be on. And uh, anytime you need anything from me, you just make it known and I'll be there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, for joining the Stonewall Spotlight podcast. Congresswoman Bass is running for re-election in California's 37th Congressional District and is the endorsed candidate of the Stonewall Democratic Club. To support her campaign, you can learn more about her. Uh, just visit KarenBass.com. Thank you again. Thank you. I am Congresswoman Karen Bass, and I am Stonewall.
we are so pleased to welcome Culver City Council candidate Freddie Puza to the Stonewall Spotlight podcast. Freddie grew up in Southern California, earning a bachelor's degree from Cal State Fullerton and a master's degree in English literature from Loyola Marymount University. In 2011, he moved to the Fox Hills neighborhood of Culver City and became an active member of the community serving on the Culver City Committee on Homelessness and the General Plan Advisory Committee. And is a member of several community-based organizations like the Culver City Democratic Club, Protect Culver City Renters, and the Culver City Action Network. He's the former chair of events for the Stonewall Democratic Club, and now he is the Stonewall endorsed candidate for Culver City Council. Please welcome Freddie Puza to the broadcast. Freddie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, really looking forward to having a conversation with you. You know what's really awesome about this, and you know we've been the member of this uh, members of this club together for like a year or so, for for a little while. And I, this is the first time I'm realizing that you went to Cal State Fullerton. I went to Cal State Fullerton as well. No, we, I didn't know that. Yeah, amazing. Wow. There's a lot of us. There are a lot of alumni. So, did you also work at Disneyland by any chance? I did not. I did audition for the Hercules Parade, though. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I was in, I was in, eighteen shows at Disney. Oh my goodness! I was a dance major, so you know that that goes right in line with me. But now you are running for Culver City City Council. Very exciting. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's get right into it. Sound good? Sounds good. Let's do it. Wonderful, Freddie. So. What inspired you to run for city council in Culver City? And where do you see a gap in leadership there that you think you can help fill? Yeah, great. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, you know, a year ago, I would have said Culver City is at a turning point. Um, we had just begun our general plan process um, and uh, we we're talking about housing. Um, and then the pandemic hit. Um, then, of course. Of course murders of um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless others, which erupted in a nationwide and citywide um, protest against uh, police brutality and against uh, systemic racism. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of progress in the city in Culver City the past few years, and I'm running to continue on that progress. And I feel I have the skill set um, to really navigate change in this, this historic moment. And I do believe change is in the air. Um, I'm a listener. Um, who's not afraid to take action. I'm a community builder. You mentioned some of the organizations that I'm involved with. I'm also involved with um, a neighborhood association in Fox Hills, the Community Coalition, and several organizations in and out of Culver City. I'm going to bring people together to have um, difficult conversations um, on topics to accomplish change. Um, and I do this through the lens of equity um, and inclusion. So, um, you know, at LMU, um, where I work at Loyola Marymount University, um, I was uh, served as staff senate president. Um, so in one of that, we learned that uh, a portion of our um, staff, um, we were communicating via um, electronic um, through email. And a lot of our staff members didn't have proper education on how to use technology, um, much less a computer. Um, to use. So we advocated um, to get a um, technology training for these staff members as well as a, a small uh, computer loan um, 
for, so they can buy the technology to use it. Also, we noticed that a large population of our staff, um, English was not their first language. So all communication that staff sent, it, sent out um, was in Spanish. Um, I also, uh, in 2014, um, I began to do, um, I began my, my racial justice work um, and I joined a group called the Alliance of White Anti-Racists Everywhere. Um, and about a year or two ago, I brought, I started a LMU chapter of AWARE um, to talk about what it means to be white, what, what is white privilege, and not to put the burden um, on people of color to explain racism, um, and also to have other white people encourage um, and challenge each other. Um, but it's never meant to supplement um, cross-racial dialogue um, and cross-racial uh, action. Um, I also serve as an implicit bias instructor. Um, so, and this is, you know, learning how the mind works, how bias works in our, in our mind and learning ways to identify that. So I'll bring all these skill sets um, to Culver City Council. Um, and it's really that, you know, uh, having the leadership to bring people together, um, to have these difficult conversations and kind of shepherd the community um, through all these changes that we're, we're navigating. Amazing. Amazing. And I love that you bring up uh, training around implicit bias when it comes to white privilege. Mm -hmm. Very, very powerful in this day and age. I really appreciate that and your focus on that and your expertise. I think that brings a lot to the table. Uh, you also come from a family with working class roots in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> lots, lots to talk about Wisconsin <laughs> right now. Uh, yes. yes, indeed. Politi politically, politically charged in Kenosha right now. Uh, and I, I'm sure that has been something that has influenced your views thus far. Uh, how do you think this informs your worldview coming from there? At first, and then, you know, in, in addition to what's going on right now. And how do you think it will help benefit your leadership in a city council role? Hmm. Yeah, Kenosha is about, my, my family's from Milwaukee, so it's about uh, 40 miles away from Kenosha. Um, wow, that's, that's not too far. That's actually pretty close. Yeah, it's, it's very close. So my dad, you know, he came from a working wow. class. His dad uh, worked in a factory for Harley-Davidson. Um, my mom came actually from a little bit different background. Um, her family was other in the car dealership, but she has a lot of doctors in her family. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of tension with that. Um, but I think that, you know, both my family, um, both of my sides of my family are from Poland, um, and they immigrated right around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and Poland was not a good place to be at that time. So they migrated to the United States for the opportunity, um, to, you know, have a better life. My dad loves to tell the story about, I believe it was his great grandfather. So my great, great grandfather, um, times were so desperate and uh, salt was such a commodity. And my great, great grandfather was a salt smuggler and he um, traveled uh, salt across the border. Wow. 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 That's amazing. <laughs> Very interesting. He always likes to say, you know, if he got caught and if he, you know, was, um, you know, we might not be here today. Um, mm, mm. It's that dangerous. Mm. Um, so we, you know, he worked really hard, um, and he, you know, uh, became an engineer, 
Um, you know, he, he provided a lot for his family. That was the one thing he wanted to do. Um, but, you know, I think that he had a lot of access to opportunity. And I think this is how we have what's you know great about this country is access to social mobile up, up, upward mobility. Right. So it's access to education, access to um, health care. Um, my dad worked hard, um, but also he's white. He was white. And so there's a lot of privileges that came with that. And that gave him um, opportunities also. So when I think about that background, I think about equity and removing barriers. Um, what barriers are there now for people um, who are trying to access education, who are trying to access, you know, getting childcare um, while they, they have to work? Um, and so what, how can we assist people? Um, to you know, better their lives so they can pursue their dreams, what they want to be doing with this uh, in this lifetime, um, and not to be overburdened by um, things that are you know um, out of their control. Um, especially if there's legislation, um, you know, discrimination by any of our institutions. Um, you know, we have to really look at this. Um, also, working families are um, you know they're they're working. They're working all the time. Um, just to put food on the table um, for their families, to care about their families. My dad told a story, um, you know, he lived in this house with his family and he had to live, um, he had to sleep um, in the living room on a on this small little bed. And I'm 6'6", six, six, my dad was 6'3". We are big people. Um, but his whole thing was like, he always made sure I had a, a big bed. Um, that was the one thing, because he really wanted to like correct that in his past. Um, but I really think that, you know, we have to think about these people who might not have access to get to a city council meeting. Um, they may be working. Um, they might, uh, there's so many reasons why people aren't attending city councils and have that direct line to um, uh, access to the things that could help them in their lives to um, assist them. So part of that also is making sure that uh, increasing the communication um, to all residents um, especially ones that aren't traditionally um, at city council meetings. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so we're going to go a little local here. Our very own Devin Adante has a question about a tree that is uprooting her sidewalk at Redwood and Beach. She says it's gone unaddressed, unaddressed by city officials, proposes a safety hazard, and makes the sidewalks not accessible to people with disabilities. Well, <laughs> while we did want to ask you about this for a chuckle, it also raises interesting questions about infrastructure and how everyday residents have ongoing problems with their day-to-day -day lives and the lack of access citizens have to their elective representatives to get these problems solved. How do you plan on engaging with the citizens of your district, Frezzy. Come on. I hear you. No, that, the <laughs> tree actually city council just um, uh, had a discussion. Uh, um, some residents want to remove and someone to save it. Um, I think that we have to, you know, I, I have to look into this uh, actual location because I'm not sure. Um, and of course, mobility is such an issue that we have to be mindful of. Um, but also trees provide a canopy. Um, they're good for the environment. Um, and we can make pocket parks and um, they can, um, you know, really help with our water conservation. Um, so there's a lot that goes into these decisions. Um, and city council has been really thoughtful and our residents have been thoughtful. And as I kind of just mentioned um, in the last question or answer there, um, we have to be, you know, it's intimidating sometimes to go to a city council meeting. 
Um, it's a long process right now, especially if people are not technology, um, are not savvy with technology. Um, it's hard to attend an online city council meeting just to log on um, and follow along. So um, also the timing might not be good. Um, so I really want to rely on our neighborhood associations. Um, we have a lot of strong um, neighborhood associations and really utilize them to get com communication out, to get information out. Um, because they're so vital. I know in the beginning of the pandemic, um, city council members really mobilized the uh, neighborhood associations to provide services and resources. Um, so I think I just want to, you know, capitalize on that and maximize on that. Um, also engaging our uh, community-based organizations. Um, you know, I want to make good on our, we became a sanctuary city. Um, so I want to make good on that, um, what that means. We don't know what's going to happen um, in November. Um, I'm hopeful and working hard to make sure that Biden mm. and Harry become um, the next leaders of this country. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen. So we don't know what that's going to mean for our immigrant um, community. Um, and so I want to make sure that, you know, reaching out, making sure that they have a voice, that they don't feel comfortable or safe um, to getting to city council to somehow have these organizations, um, you know, reach out to them so they can convey the messaging. Um, it's so important um, when thinking about equity um, and communication. Um, I think, you know, of course, 100% would be amazing to get to, to reach every um, person. But I think as far as the equity lens and communication, it's how do we reach the people who historically haven't come to a meeting, as I mentioned before, um, who, who who don't know, um, you know, how to get to, you know, who our city council members are in the first place. Um, reaching those people, making sure that they have some kind of line of dialogue and communication. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, and, and you think that if there's that stronger line of communication and that coordination of, say, information, a coordination of information, of what I like to call it, <laughs> orderly information, you might be able to respond to that in an orderly and efficient way. Mm -hmm. Clearing up those those lines of communication very very important, right? Is is that just like to the to the root of it? Yeah, and also you know the the status quo is kind of like pe uh, people reach in just the city council. So you have an issue, you reach into city council. But I think city council needs to do a better job of reaching out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's the way we can get a hold of those um, those issues. Exactly what you're saying. So there can be a more consistent, orderly way to solve those. Um, but if and I. I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, there's, there's, if we're not reaching out, we're not going to know because for all those reasons, of what prevent people, the barriers that prevent people from um, not even know that they could make a suggestion in the first place, maybe, you know? Yeah, exactly. And a minute ago, you bring up issues. And let's talk about an issue that you know a lot about. You served on the Culver City Committee on Homelessness. Big issue in Los Angeles, all across the city. I know this. The 2019 Homeless County showed, Homeless Count showed, that there are more than 200 homeless individuals in Culver City. In keeping with a trend of rising homelessness in Los Angeles County, Culver City has passed a five-year, $23 million homeless plan. Do you agree with this approach? What more needs to be done for the homeless population? And in general, how much of a priority will you make programs meant to aid disadvantaged communities when Culver City overall is a fairly affluent city? 
Yeah, great. There's so much in there. Um, yeah, and just uh, so about 200. I think the number might be a little bit higher, but less than 300. Um, and, you know, Culver City has a total population of 40,000 people. But every time I drive by or see someone who's unhoused or experiencing homelessness, um, my heart sinks because we as a society have failed. Um, we failed these people to provide the right services and resources to really excel. Um, you know, I really think that the measure of a city is how we treat those uh, who are least among, among us. Um, I, um, before I was on the Committee of Homelessness, I did uh, service on Skid Row. Um, for three years. And so it was, um, we passed out food. Um, and some of the things that made it very unique were um, when the people lined up to get the food, um, we'd say their name. Um, so we'd ask them what their name is, and then they'd say their name, and then we'd all yell it. And at first, I thought that was really silly um, and kind of uncomfortable. Um, but oftentimes, you know, people would come up after and be like, that was the most amazing thing. So many times people just pass by me, don't look at me, or if they do, it's dirty thoughts. I'm not a human being to them in their eyes. <laughs> so this gave them humanity a moment. Sometimes I gave fake names and we just, you know, we didn't, we just went with whatever they said. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but it really humanized the issue for me. And I, I do think direct service is a compassionate act. Um, and that is very amazing things to be doing. But throughout that, I also learned about the structural um, and systemic things that cause homelessness. So this is a root, um, you know, this is the symptom of all these other problems. And it's actually at the city, the local and regional level that these issues can be resolved. Um, so that's when I decided to um, apply for the Committee on Homelessness. Um, and when I was on that committee, um, it was right around when um, Measure H funding was first starting. Um, we had just uh, started the motel conversion program, um, studying that, um, the Section 8 turnover, and then also doing the homeless count. Um, we also started, it was the beginning stages of planning to have a um, kind of like a fair for property owners um, to create incentives and give them information about renting to Section 8 um, people with Section 8 vouchers and were people who were formerly unhoused. Um, so I really appreciate what's going on in the city right now. Um, I love what the Committee on Homelessness is doing. I think we need to move in this direction. Um, I think in the short term, uh, during this, this crisis in the next few years, you know, um, I'm a big fan of affordable housing, inclusionary zoning, um, but all that money um, is probably not going to be used um, in the interim right now, in the next few years. We're probably going to be using that on rental assistance. Um, so in the interim, I like the idea of shared housing. Um, so that's where a group of formerly unhoused people live in the same house. Of course, they'd have to abide by safety guidelines, but it's much less um, money to rehab an existing facility than it is to build from scratch. Um, also, the motel conversion program, I know that the governor set aside some money for that. Um, Culver City has identified two motels that might be interested. Um, I think it might be a good time for them um, to sell. So if that were to happen, that'd be another way, of course, housing them and then also providing wraparound services is, is essential. Um, and then also our ADU program. Um, so I know that Measure H, if you um, house a formerly um, homeless person that you can get a grant up to $50,000 for renovations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this will increase our housing stock um, and we, we're in a housing crisis. And so always to increase that is going to be very helpful. Um, you're right, we don't have a lot of low income communities in our city. Um, but I really think this is a values proposition. Um, what kind of city do we want to be and who do we want to be and what do we value? Do we want to criminalize poverty? 
do we want to be punitive? Um, do we want to put people through a revolving door of um, punishment, um, getting tickets, going to jail, um, possibly escalating to violence and or death? And then is the uh, revolving door? Or do we really, really want to provide services for people, uplift people, um, um, and give them a chance to, um, you know, for housing? Housing is the most basic human need. Um, I do believe that housing is a human right. Um, and so um, giving them um, an opportunity, um, and it's less expensive. Um, the cost to send out police, the cost to send out emergency services, um, the cost to put someone in jail um, is much higher than providing housing. Um, so it's also for those uh, who can't humanitarian um, argument, um, there's an economic one as well. Amazing. And, uh, you know, you, you, you snuck something in there that I want to talk about for a minute because, as you know, I, I am on the Neighborhood Council in downtown Los Angeles, and we have, a, we have the largest homeless population in the city, arguably the entire country. And uh, you said two words that I think are, is a huge, huge benefit that we are not considering, that has been a consideration with Hollywood, is inclusionary housing, an inclusionary housing ordinance, which means something like a 2080 ordinance, right? Or something along those lines where you have mixed income ordinance within a certain development, uh, you know, class, right? And that's uh, a mandate. And what that does, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that, that provides different income levels to be able to all cohabitate in one area that creates a flourishing community. Uh, and uh, is, that, is that something that you think that can come about in Culver City? Do you think that's something that, that's uh, achievable? Yeah, we're actually in the process of um, doing that right now. So um, we, um, I'm part of Protect Culver City Renters. So last year there was a, a moratorium on evictions, a rent freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the part of that was doing a study on inclusionary zoning and then also linkage fees. Um, so linkage fees are when a developer comes in, um, they're charged a fee that will go into the pot, so to speak, um, for affordable housing. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's something that we, we have to do. You know, Culver City has only added um, about 602 units since 2000. So that's a 3.5 increase. Um, and that is far below any of our regional partners. Um, so we haven't really increased any of our housing stock. Um, we have, uh, as you, it's so exciting that we have big companies coming in, Apple Studios, Google, uh, Amazon Studios. Um, a lot of jobs are coming into the area, um, but we're not keeping up with housing production. Um, so we really need to be mindful of this as we do, as we grow. Um, and then also to have, you know, as, as Culver City has become more and more expensive since uh, 2010. Um, people making $150,000 and over has more than quadrupled. Um, so we know that a higher income, so that means people are gonna get pushed out. So if we don't have um, these uh, afford affordable housing units, um, then the people who are doing um, certain types of jobs, um, low wage jobs are gonna have to go further and further out. And this has a negative effect on the environment. This has a negative effect on uh, congestion. Um, so we wanna create housing opportunities where exactly mixed income, mixed use as well, um, having retail and housing. We know that retail is gonna shift um, and what that's gonna look like, especially after you know we get out of this mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, so there's gonna be a lot of changes that are gonna be happening. So, yeah. Well. Good stuff. COVID-19. COVID-19. A 
<sighs> defining word of our generation has deeply affected, in particular, the entertainment industry. I personally spent 15 years of my life in the professional theater industry that's been completely ravaged mm -hmm. by COVID-19, unfortunately. But the entertainment industry, the movie industry, the major studios, you also have uh, a theatrical industry, small, has a home in Culver City. What can be done at the city level to get the industry, particularly the entertainment industry, back to work, Freddie? Yeah, we are. This is the, um, the crisis of our generation. Um, mm. We will be fine for this. Um, and I don't know if we'll ever go back to whatever it was, whatever we were used to before. Um, I think so many things are going to change during this. Um, I'm actually hosting an upcoming campaign event. Um, we're going to be discussing different um, leaders in the community, talking about small businesses um, and the creative economy in the age of COVID. Um, so I'm really excited to engage and have those conversations of what can be done. Um, you know, the creative economy in Culver City makes up 25% of our city's GDP. So it's a big, um, big chunk. Now, this is everywhere from entertainment also to, you know, marketing services um, and graphic design. So it's a very wide range of um, professions and jobs. Um, I think the first thing um, I just want to throw out there is to please wear masks um, and follow county health guidelines. Um, this will accelerate us getting out of this pandemic. Um, so follow, please follow that. Um, I have a friend who works, he's an executive producer um, in the entertainment industry, and he is overwhelmed and, and over his head um, in trying to figure out how is production going to get back up and running and all the, like the, the testing, liability, um, there's so many things that go into decision-making um, that is making production really, really hard. Um, so I think that one of the things is organizing, first is our, our, our all the members of our creative economy in the city, um, especially more of our small to mid-sized companies, um, to do some information sharing, resource sharing, um, and if necessary, to collective problem solving. Um, these are creative people. Um, these are the people I have faith in these people to create and um, come together um, to figure out what are the issues um, and then work with city council um, to help like make those things become a reality. Um, I know that some cities around the country um, started to do red alert. So that's where they um, shine red lights on their entertainment venues. Um, and so I think that that is something that we um, should consider. It's literally saying, warning, warning, um, you know, please support this legislation to really uh, um, increase, um, to continue the, um, the support, the financial support to small to medium-sized businesses that were most affected um, by the pandemic. So this includes the entertainment industry and includes restaurants, bars, hair salons. Um, these people have been devastated um, and there's no really, um, you know, uh, we're trying to figure out how to, how to make this all happen. Um, but we have to come together, um, you know, working with the Economic Recovery Task Force um, to see like pulling resources um, and, um, you know, looking to um, different ways of doing things. Like I said, um, things are going to be different. So looking more to digital releases um, and um, limited amounts of staff on set or having, you know, nursing on, on sets. Um, and, you know, I do have faith um, that with the entertainment um, 
industry will bounce back. We thought in the economic downturn in 2009 that music would forever be, you know, gone. Um, and it found a way to found a business model. It found a way to come back. Um, and I know this will be true for our entertainment industry. As a reminder, I want all of our listeners to hear my words and do as I say. Go to www dot freddy who is that that's f-r-e-d-d-y-p-u-z-a dot com and donate money right now ten dollars twenty dollars one hundred dollars what's the max freddy uh thousand fifty thousand if you got if you got a thousand fifty dollars burning in your pocket that you don't know how to use it freddypuza.com <laughs> needs that G, well, right? Freddypuza.com. Good. And what are you going to do with that money? Well, I think that, you know, this election is going to be historic on many levels, at the national level and at the local level. Because the local level is really where um, a lot of the things that affect people the most is where it's going to mm -hmm. be happening. Those decisions are going to be happening. Every dollar goes to some good use. Um, you know, we are hosting a lot of... Um, meet and greets um, on uh, on Zoom. Um, it's gonna go to the campaign. I'm gonna be sending out mailers. Um, we're gonna do some um, advertising on digital on digital media. Um, it's keeping every it's keeping this campaign alive. It's keeping it moving. Um, so we can really, you know, um, pursue a progressive agenda in, in Culver City. Amazing. You, uh, some other good good juicy stuff. You are a proud gay man. Very, very proud of you for running as an out gay man. Very few of us out there. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in the LGBTQ plus space and the importance of the community representation, LGBTQ plus representation in elected office? Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that really... Um, molded my interest in politics was um, uh, the year that Obama ran for president and Prop 8 was also um, being voted for. Um, there are two things that I was told as a child. One, there'd never be a black president. And two, there'd never be, marriage equality wasn't even a thing to even call it that, but there'd never be marriage between um, two same-sex partners. Um, so when Barack Obama won, um, it was such an amazing victory um, and so powerful and moving. Um, but at the same time, Prop 8 um, also passed. Um, right. So it, Ugh, gosh. So it was devastating, um, but also bittersweet, right? Um, as we know, marriage equality became the law of the land. But um, for me, that really shaped in my mind, you know, when people say things can't be done, it's, it's not true to me anymore because the impossible became possible. Um, and so that really, you know, if elected, I'll be the first openly LGBTQ um, council member in Culver City. Um, and I think that's really important on a couple levels. Um, you know, it's not just to check the box um, that we, we got someone, um, a gay man in there. Um, but representation is truly about, um, I think about our youth. I've been talking a lot with our um, high school students and our younger um, people in their 20s. Um, and I think that, um, they're really asking for, it's coming out as a very different experience, but also the very, a very same experience. Um, and so I think it's still, there is, it's still hard to come out um, in some families, especially if you come from, you know, depending on your background. Um, and so I also think, um, 
you know, they, there's a lot of bullying that still happens at school. Um, mm. Students want mental health services. Um, we need to really be mindful of our, our trans brothers and sisters, um, especially our trans people of color. Um, they um, have higher rates of, of bullying. Um, they have access to employment, housing. Um, so we really need to stand in, in solidarity with them. Um, they were there for us. Um, and so now it's time to like really stand up um, in solidarity for them. I'm at LMU. Um, I was the co-chair of the LGBTQ faculty staff network. Um, and so some of the things we did before marriage equality, um, the network really supported, um, the university had domestic partnerships. So we really supported that and helped um, you know, really champion that. Um, we, I started to also work with um, a lot of our academics um, and our scholars were doing research on the LGBTQ related um, uh, anywhere from you know social psychology to communication. So I started to bring um, all that brain trust together um, and having academic um, forums to share that information and all this great research that we're putting out. Um, we supported students. Um, I helped support um, cultural competency courses and training for working with the trans community. Um, and uh, the university, um, th this was not um, on me, but it's one of the few um, universities that have the LGBT um, office for student services. Um, so this is very uh, unique for a Jesuit um, university, um, but all are welcome there. Um, and I really believe in that. When marriage equality came around, um, when that was up, um, I did a lot of campaign work. I worked with organizations like Human Rights Campaign um, and did canvassing to support that. Um, I'm part of a Buddhist organization. Um, and so I, um, you know, been doing some interfaith work um, as a person who, you know, is spiritual, um, working around issues of, um, you know, being confident as an LGBTQ person. Um, and oftentimes uh, there's a perception that religion doesn't accept our community, um, but really standing up proud um, and, you know, owning uh, our, our spirituality, which is really important. Um, and then being in Stonewall is such a great way to be an advocate for uh, and LGBTQ issues um, to support progressive um, candidates and causes and bills. Um, it's really part, important, uh, part of the work that I do. Um, Great. Thank you for doing that, by the way. It's so, it's super important. And I can attest to Freddie's work. He shows up and he does the work. It's about showing up, doing the work. That's what you got to do to get things done. That's what you got yeah. to do. Thank you for doing that. I, I want to know, who are some of your heroes, past, present, live, alive or past? Mm -hmm. And uh, who inspires you? Okay. Let me have it. Yeah. Wait, as you mentioned, um, I got a master's degree in literature. My favorite writer um, is James Baldwin. Um, he is incredible. He had to navigate um, his black identity, his gay identity, um, the American identity, um, and had to really, and all the while being a, a talented, prolific, smart writer. Um, and so I love, I'm actually, I picked up Giovanni's Room, which was one of my favorite novels by him, um, and I'm starting to read that again. Um, just the way he navigated the system, um, his intellect, um, it's so inspiring um, to, to be authentically, he was authentically himself. Um, and I think that's really profound and um, I love that about him. Um, as far as like a human being, um, I'm really inspired by um, Daisaku Ikeda. He's a Buddhist philosopher. 
Um, and um, I love his ideas about how to create and establish a peaceful society um, and also how to take responsibility for your own life um, and to help others um, in the process. Um, he's so uh, prolific and um, we all have the same amount of time, but he's able to produce so many writings and works. Um, and so I've really been inspired by, by him. And then lastly, I would say my sister. Um, my sister is a strong, smart woman. Um, she's a teacher. She cares about people. Um, um, she cares about her family. Um, she's really almost been a second mom to me. Um, my mom was always around, but um, my, my sister kind of held the family together. Um, and, you know, when I came out, I thought the earth was going to open and I was going to fall down into the pits of, you know, despair and hell. Um, and I told my sister that I was gay and she was like, oh, I kind of knew um, I'm, I'm about to go see a movie. Can we can we get going? And I always was like, how it is always like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so those those three people really inspire and move me. Amazing. I love those stories. And thank you for that. If you had the power to make one change today, whether a policy, a social problem or a system of governance, what would you change, Freddie, and why? Yeah. Um, you know, I would love to have health care for all people. Um, we can see in this last in this pandemic um, how, you know, people of color, particularly the black community, um, was disproportionately affected by this virus. Um, we need to make sure everyone has access to health care. This is a basic human need. Um, and the other part of it that I thought about is, you know, um, my dad passed away this year from cancer. Um, and he had, last year he struggled a lot. And he was on Medicare um, and he received amazing care. Um, and even, you know, when he was in hospice, um, it, was a, it, was, it was a high quality of care. Um, it would have bankrupt my family had we had to pay out of pocket. Um, and I think that shouldn't, healthcare shouldn't be limited to age. And so we should really expand it. Um, there'll be long-term cost savings. Also, if we deal with prescription drugs, um, but I think that this, that would be, you know, there's, it's so complex and it's very complicated, but if I can, you know, have my um, magic wand today, that would be the one um, change I'd make. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Thank you so much, Freddie Puza, for joining us today. Freddie Puza is running for Culver City Council this November and is the Stonewall endorsed candidate. You can find out more about him. Donate as much money as you can and support his campaign at www.freddypuza.com. Thanks for being on Stonewall Spotlight, Freddie. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure. Have a good day. I'm Freddie Puza, and I am Stonewall. The Stonewall Spotlight podcast is pleased to welcome back Lucky Alexander Fuller to the program. Lucky is a trans activist, a member of the Los Angeles County Transgender Advisory Council, and a member of the Brown Boy Project. He founded a nonprofit organization called Invisible Men, which provides resources and advocacy for transgender men, and particularly transgender men of color. 
In June, he was responsible for painting the words All Black Lives Matter on Hollywood Boulevard amidst the global protests that followed the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Again, I'm pleased to welcome Lucky Alexander Fuller. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, welcome back. Uh, Lucky, I wanted to start off uh, talking about the mural on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, I was there the day of the march, and it was quite impressive. Can you share what it meant to you to paint this? And what do you think it does for transgender visibility and representation? Well, um, for me, as the the person that designed the um, the mural, the, the both iterations, the first and the second, um, it was it was a message of inclusion. It was a message that um, even though we lie within these intersections of LGBTQ plus IA and whatnot, um, that we're still black first, and that we needed to be included in the uh, the movement as well. And so, to actually see it physically on the ground. Um, it was a lot. This is the biggest that anything that I've ever created um, has ever been, like physically. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I do a lot of graphic design around um, like posters or, you know, a lot of different things. But to see something physically so big, it was mind blowing. Yeah, it was really striking and very powerful to see. It was, and, uh, it was incredible. Yeah, it- the way that the city moved um, to make sure it happened and, you know, all of the, the other departments and whatnot that were integral in making, making sure that that happened. Yeah. You got a lot of volunteers to, yeah. to paint the letters like the day before, um, right. you know, very last minute, but yet so organized and executed brilliantly. And, you know, I can say being there on the ground during, during that March, you know, it just, it just added to the level of intensity that we all felt. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, that leads me into um, my next question that the Black Lives Matter protests have, as we know, rocked the nation since George Floyd. And since his murder in May, there have been continued police killings of people of color. But we know that violence against the trans community is extremely pervasive, including by the police. Do you think that violence against trans people get the kind of attention that is needed? Um, absolutely not. Um, because we have, we have, um, Tony McDade who was killed two days after George Floyd and Mm -hmm. he was killed by Tallahassee police. And even though there were murders, uh, by police and police brutality that happened to black folks after George Floyd, those names were uplifted and Tony McDade was left out. He was, you know, um, just kind of glazed over for a lot of different reasons. So, um, one of those reasons, I think, because he was trans, right? And mm-hmm. another one of those reasons was because he was misgendered a lot in the media and he was misgendered a lot in a lot of the news stories that uh, were circulating. And so a lot of the news stories that were even, it took us a minute to find out that it was a trans guy. Right. So, and I think even more so with all the rest of the the folks that we lose to just transphobia as a whole. So we have trans women that are, you know, mercilessly being um, murdered and it's unnecessary. I completely agree. So I'm curious, uh, what is the role that you think the LGBTQ community um, has towards the Black Lives Matter protests? Well, I think the LGBTQ community, one, we're part of that as Black people. Um, So we're all part of the same 
same um, communities. And I think the LGBT community as a whole, just like any other community, um, has a responsibility to be respectful and to be allies. If you're going to step into the space and say, we're here to support, then actually do that. Don't, don't let it be just something you say, be an actual action word. Um, I don't think that the LGBT community has a specific, a specific obligation to the black lives matter protest. But I think just like anybody else, like I said previously, um, it's, it's about like standing up and doing what's right. And really mm-hmm. speaking up for, you know, all of the injustices that happen within um, any community, especially, you know, right now it's the Black Lives Matter because we're the ones in danger. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on what effective allyship looks like to you uh, for people that may be new to the movement or are cisgendered or not people of color, but happen to identify as queer in some way? I think that um, effective allyship means ask, asking questions, really ask the community that you want to advocate for, ask questions, find out what it is that they need, how they need to be supported, um, find out more about the community in which you want to ally for. So, you know, for the trans community or the LGBTQ community, and maybe you don't identify within specific intersections, find out, do the research, um, mm-hmm. you know, really ask those questions. And, you know, I like to, to tell people that um, ask these kind type of questions, this, if someone bought me a medium shirt and I'm a large guy, um, that medium shirt is going to be useless to me. But if you asked me what size I wore and you wanted to help me out and this is how you help me out, then at least ask me some questions about what I need and, you know, what fits for me first before you start to do any of the allyship. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so I think true allyship means doing your research finding out what folks need, um, and asking those questions, really get to know the community. Yeah. And that was a, that was a great example with the shirt. Um, easy to explain and, and, you know, education is key for sure. Absolutely. The trans community is still massively underrepresented in the media and in political discourse. And the representation that trans, that the trans community has received has focused primarily on trans women. And you founded Invisible Men as a response. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and why you founded it? So, uh, and I'll I'll answer the question the other way around. So, um, Invisible Men was created because there was no resources for me as a person when I transitioned. Um, I transitioned about 20 years ago, and I medically transitioned about 10 years ago. So, when I was looking for research around like what do hormones do for the body and what do um, what kind of changes can I expect and, and all of those different things, there were no resources that looked like me. There was nothing reflective of black folks. And so um, I said, you know what, the one thing that I can do is create a narrative that belongs to us. And so Invisible Men was born. So Invisible Men is a platform for trans men especially, uh, or, and trans masculine folks, because we do have quite a few non-binary folks that participate. Um, so it's a platform for us to be our own storytellers, to tell our own stories and put our own narratives out there. That way we have control of what our narrative looks like. Um, and so from there, it grew into, um, a, a much larger project, a much larger, um, organization to where we were able to create a visibility that we didn't have before. And, also ask for those resources because what I do know is that you cannot ask for um, help 
you cannot ask for assistance if no one knows there's a problem. So mm-hmm. we created the narrative, we created the visibility, and from there we were able to reach out to quite a few organizations to uh, link in with them as far as resources, medical, mental health, um, housing, um, emotional support, and all of those different things. And I want to back up to the emotional support piece. Um, emotional support is very key for trans masculine folks because as a male demographic, we don't often get the space to say, hey, I'm not feeling well or I'm not okay. Um, so that kind of gives us like that bouncing to be able to reach out and support one another around the emotional health piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the you know unique challenges that uh, trans men specifically face. And we're very thankful and grateful for your organization as a resource to the community. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add or talk about today? Um, I do want to talk about um, just around resources with Invisible Men. Um, mm-hmm. One of those resources around like mental health um, is necessary because trans men have um, the highest rates of suicide ideology and um, whether it's attempted or have actually gone through it. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of this is because there is no emotional support. And like one of the pieces that our um, organization handles um, and just to give an antidote, right? So I'm 30 years old when I transition and I go from female presenting to male, right? Looking mm-hmm. like I look. And, you know, once you go from one space to another, like instantly that emotional space is gone. And so that's why a lot of those rates of suicide are high because we don't have any space to say, I'm, I'm not okay. Um, or it's dangerous in a male perceived body, right? So um, a lot of those pieces are very important. So I think that if anybody takes away anything, if you have any transmasculine friends, like reach out to them, just find out uh, how they're doing, find out if they're okay. Because a lot of times, you know, because of the, the male perception, we don't often speak up and say, we're not okay. We don't often speak up and say, um, I'm hurting or something's going on. And we have issues around that, even within like the domestic violence piece of that and um, intimate partner violence piece. And a lot of times we don't speak up because of, you know, a lot of different factors. And one of those factors is the way that we were socialized as, you know, female body children. Um, I know for me, you know, as a 40 something, you know, I was raised, sit down and shut up. You weren't, you know, you're, you're better seen, not heard. And so that carries into, um, us as men. Right. And I think there's a lot of growing to do is, uh, culture and society as a whole for emotional and mental health, especially around the men, the the male demographic. So regardless of you're trans male or you're trans masculine, or you're just cis male you know, there's no space for that emotional piece. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Well, thank you for mentioning that today. And uh, before we wrap up today, Lucky, I hear that you were recently married. So yes. I just want to share my congratulations with you. Thank you. Thank you. We actually got married on the, on the mural. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. How appropriate. Well, thank you so much, Lucky Alexander Fuller, for joining the Stonewall Spotlight podcast. He is the founder of Invisible Men, a trans advocacy organization, and you can learn more about them at InvisibleTMen.com.
Halloween's coming in. It's one of my favorite times of year. The chill in the air, the haunted tales. I love a good ghost story. This one that I'm about to tell you, it's about a graveyard. It's a graveyard run by the Grim Reaper. Sounds creepy, right? Well, it is creepy, very creepy. And this isn't about a typical haunted place, the kind that kids at camp tell each other about over a fire. But it is something that I think those same kids are gonna learn about in school for years to come, hopefully as a cautionary tale. What I'm talking about is the United States Senate. And yes, it's a graveyard created by Republican leader and horrible amphibian Mitch McConnell, who as a joke, because he's known for his sense of humor, has coined himself the Grim Reaper since every single bill the House passes goes to the Senate to die. It's scary. Scary how the Senate has become completely dysfunctional and almost obsolete, but to stand in the way of almost everything that the House does. Aside from confirming judges and naming post offices, they did get to work to give us $1,200 once, so that was neat. But as the higher court of a bicameral national legislature functioning as one third of the government of the Republic, yeah, the Senate's just not cutting it. Of course, Right now, it's in Republican hands, and with a leader who doesn't care to let legislative progress live, a frightening graveyard, it will remain. But we can change that. A third of the Senate is up for election this time around, as is the case every two years. Most of the people who are serving are asking for another chance. As Democrats, there are quite a few that we hope will be denied that opportunity to return, including the Grim Reaper himself. As far as the Senate goes, it's an institution that doesn't historically reflect the diversity of the American people. It's only been a touch over a century since we started electing two people per state directly to the body. Before that, they were appointed by state legislatures. Usually, those two people were white men. In 1922, a woman, Rebecca Latimer Felton, was appointed to the Senate for the first time. She served a day. One day. A decade later, Hattie Carraway became the first woman to be elected to the Senate in her own right. She was a Democrat from Arkansas. And since then, the amount of women in the Senate have steadily increased, but have yet to reach an equivocal number of senators for the women in the U.S. population. And that's where the Senate fails to be a fascinating study in how government can reflect the people it serves. There are a hundred senators serving right now. Just over half the U.S. population are women. That does not translate to 51 senators being women, but we currently have a record high of 26. Black people make up just under 15% of the American population, but only 10 black people have ever served in the U.S. Senate. Three are serving right now, and the only black woman in the Senate runs a pretty good chance, fingers crossed, knock on wood, of leaving for a big promotion in January. Latinos are the largest American ethnic minority, and yet they are only represented by, count them, four U.S. senators right now. When New Mexico's Ben Ray Lujan wins in his typically blue state, again, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that count goes up to five in January. If queer people make up 5% of the U.S., we aren't seeing ourselves proportionately represented in the Senate. No, no. But, thankfully, in the last decade and a half, we've seen Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona represent America's first lesbian and bisexual senators, respectively. 
We have a long ways to go before a simple body of a hundred looks anything remotely like the country it represents. But maybe 2020 and this election can offer some change. Let's take a look. In one key race, possibly our biggest flip opportunity, Democrats look to unseat an appointed conservative woman with a man. That may decrease the ultimate count of women for the moment, but something tells me that Mark Kelly would be better for Arizonans than Martha McSally. After all, the voters picked cinema over her just two years ago, and McSally was appointed to the other open seat anyway. What a consolation prize. Now she faces a steep uphill challenge by Kelly, the former astronaut and gun control advocate. By the way, Mark Kelly would be the second astronaut elected to the Senate, not including the two senators that we've sent into space as part of a special NASA program. Don't worry, we brought them back. In Texas, if Mary Jennings Hagar, known to us as MJ, unseats the not exactly popular John Cornyn, she would join Illinois' Tammy Duckworth as just one of two women to be severely injured in combat before their time in the Senate. Amy McGrath is another combat vet, and she's trying to unseat the Grim Reaper himself in Kentucky. Kamala Harris may end up out of the Senate if all goes well, but if all does go well for Democrats, the number of black senators could increase if South Carolina sends Jamie Harrison to the Senate instead of Lindsey, did I say that, Graham? And don't forget that Ebenezer Baptist Church's Reverend Raphael Warnock could also make his way to DC to represent Georgia. Harris is not only the only black woman in the Senate right now, but she's also the only woman of Indian heritage in the Senate, which is a mantle that she could hand over to Sarah Gideon if she is sent by Maine to replace Susan Collins. Talented women like Teresa Greenfield in Iowa or Barbara Bollier in Kansas could make their way to the Senate too. Bollier is a doctor and a former Republican who, like many others in recent years, left to become a Democrat. The imaginary medical personnel caucus that I just made up could be enhanced also by Al Gross, who's an Alaskan independent who won his race's Democratic nomination. Perhaps with two new doctors in the Senate, they can maybe steer us towards better COVID legislation or preserving Obamacare. I don't know, just a thought. Steve Bullock in Montana and Cal Cunningham in North Carolina both have excellent shots at unseating unpopular incumbent Republicans. And I dare say that if either or both of those men made it, they'd bring the median age of the Senate down quite a bit, which at 61 is among the least youthful in our country's history. John Ossoff in Georgia could help with that too. He'd be our first millennial senator. So Sure, we want to flip the Senate. Of course we do. We're so close and all we need are a few seats. But it's about so much more than that. It's about making sure that the Senate looks even just a little bit more like all of us. Each race I just mentioned has the ability to bring a new, unique American story to the halls of Congress. And if it's a total landslide for us on the Democratic side, the Senate will be more female, more diverse, younger, and more progressive than ever before. Check out these candidates, get involved, and let's make sure that every two years we keep trying to reshape this contemplative and now semi-dormant body into an accurate snapshot of America itself. Then maybe, just maybe, it won't look so frightening.
Thank you so much for tuning in to this month's edition of Stonewall Spotlight. My name is Marcus Levingood, your host. Please tune in next time for another exciting edition of Stonewall Spotlight. We'll see you next time. We'd like to thank the Stonewall Democratic Club for their constant support, as well as our very talented staff, my co-producer, Mackenzie Hussman, our writer, Alex Mahasher, our contributor, Jonathan Welch, Devin Adante as our coordinator, and our editor-in-chief, 